So we are in the second week of our Matthew sermon series. We've got a long way to go, but um, I'm excited for it. So last week, we talked about Matthew chapter 1, and we were talking about the genealogy specifically uh, that Matthew opens up with. Um, and a theme I pointed out for us just to keep in mind last week, but also throughout this whole series as we go through Matthew, is just to remember that Jesus is at the center of God's story. Um, so as we read these, these New Testament books, and Matthew especially, we need to be looking out for how Jesus isn't just some brand new thing in the middle of nowhere that appeared, but that he's at the very center of God's story, that it's all been building towards Jesus, that all of Scripture uh, points to Jesus. And Matthew really takes pains to, to remind us about that over and over again. And so in the genealogy, we looked at this lineage of Jesus and how all these different characters kind of point us to Jesus and how Jesus fulfills God's promises and, and the hopes that these people had. So yeah, pay attention as we continue through Matthew 2 today, um, just how Jesus specifically is at the center of God's story. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew 2, and we're just going to read the first 12 verses. If you thought Christmas was over, we're going right back to the birth story of Jesus. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, find him report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So there's a lot of surprising characters that come to greet the newborn King Jesus. Uh, it's not in the story of Matthew, but Luke talks about the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And that's definitely not the kind of prestige or influence you might expect from someone to come and greet a new king. And then here in our passage, we have the Magi from the east. So these are definitely much more prestigious men, but um, they are no less surprising to be coming to greet the king of the Jews. How did they know so much about Jesus and why did they even care? They weren't Jews. They weren't the chosen people of God and this probably wasn't their God. Um, they were more likely from some pagan religion that worshipped another god. Um, in this passage, the Magi end up being contrasted against Herod the Great, the man who had been appointed by Rome to be the king of Judea. But more poignantly, these Magi are also contrasted against all Jerusalem, the chief priests and the teachers of the law specifically, 
uh, also known as the Jewish religious establishment. So these Jewish leaders have kind of aligned themselves with Herod in their skepticism at this arrival of the so-called king of the Jews. Um, so we know well, if you've read the Gospels, of this constant tension that there is between Jesus and the Jewish establishment. And now here in this story is where it, where it begins, where it first starts. It's so interesting to me to see this very first announcement of a baby being born. He's proclaimed king of the Jews. And yet the Jews just don't even give him a minute of their time to consider that he might actually be the king. It's easy to understand the reaction on Herod's part. Jesus being presented as the king of the Jews is obviously a threat to his position as the king of the Jews. But why are the Jewish leaders so immediately disturbed by Jesus? Weren't they waiting expectantly for the Messiah? They even knew and quoted the prophecy from Micah saying that out of Bethlehem, would come a ruler for Israel. It seems like if they were earnestly studying the scriptures and wanted to, to believe what they were saying, then they would see this baby being born in the city that was prophesied and, and rush to greet him. <clears throat> so perhaps uh, at Advent, when we speak of these themes of hope, peace, love, and joy, and rightly so, for these are all the most important things that Jesus brings, Perhaps we forget to state some of the other more disturbing things that come with the arrival of the Messiah. Things that probably the Jewish leaders knew well. But now that Advent's over and it's the new year, we can dig into all the bad and nasty stuff that comes along with Jesus. Um, in Luke's story about Jesus' birth, we're told about two faithful Israelites who get to meet the baby Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. These people are Simeon and Anna. The Simeon's an old man who's been waiting his whole life for the Messiah. And he sees Jesus and says this beautiful prayer in thanks to God for sending a Savior to deliver, um, to, to save all the nations. And then he pr finishes this sweet prayer of thanks to God and he turns to Mary and says this. This is in Luke 2, 34-35. He says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Try putting that into a Christmas carol. When Jesus is older and he's begun his ministry, he says a similarly off-putting thing about himself. In Matthew 10.34, he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring, bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So perhaps the Jewish leaders knew too well what the Scripture said about the Messiah, and they feared this sword that he would bring. A passage in the Gospel of John gives us a pretty clear insight into the antagonistic motivations of some of these Jewish leaders. In this passage, Jesus had just raised Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus from the dead. And then we read this. This is John eleven forty-five to 48 says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So their chief motivation was protecting their power and establishment. 
They had a tenuous relationship with the Romans, probably a general negativity and distrust of them. But at least they still had their temple and their nation, in some sense of the word. But this Messiah, with his sword that he brought, threatened all of that. When the Romans caught wind of what Jesus was doing, they would surely strip the Jewish Jewish establishment of their power. So in the end, even though Herod and the Jewish leaders are two very different camps, they were both disturbed for the same reasons. Jesus posed a serious threat to their power. And they rightly understood that the inauguration of Jesus' kingdom would mean the end of their own. We don't know a whole lot about the Magi in this story, but it's safe to assume that they probably didn't have a theologically sound Christology or understand fully what it even signified for them to come and worship Jesus. But either way, we see that their response to his birth was to travel a long, long way. Um, It's estimated they traveled nearly a thousand miles to find Jesus. And then they were overjoyed when they saw the star and when they finally encountered This baby Jesus, this helpless baby, they bowed down and worshipped him. So as we read this story and we look at these two very different responses to Jesus, I think the question we're left with is, how will you respond to King Jesus? There's the obvious aspect of that question of whether or not you will confess Jesus as king in your life, as the Lord of your life. If you're sitting in this room, it's likely that you've already made that decision for yourself. But if that's not the case for you, I hope you'll consider responding to Jesus by forsaking your own kingdom and embracing his kingship. And I or any of the other leaders here would love to talk to you more about that if that's a decision you're considering. But for those of us here who already live under Jesus' rule, I'd like to dig into this question a little bit further. Not only how will you respond to King Jesus, but how will you respond to threats to your power? And many of us might not even think of our lives in terms of power. So let me change that question a little bit more. How will you respond to threats to your comfort? Yes, Jesus does bring hope, joy, love, and peace, all these themes of Advent. And it's important we talk about those things. But right now I want to focus on this sword that Jesus brings. Are you prepared for Jesus to cut away these things that you hold dear? Don't think that you're safe from this sword because you're already in with Jesus. The Jewish leaders should be a clear example to the contrary. Jesus poses a threat to each of us in our own little kingdoms that we build. No other kingdom can stand when Jesus reigns. Uh, There's this quote from the, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that I love. And I'm sure I've quoted it in a sermon before, but here it is again. Um, So if you're not familiar with the story, um, it's a story about this fantastical world that these four children find themselves in. And uh, in this world, there's a a version of Jesus, uh, this figure who's named Aslan. And the kids are kind of just finding out about him from the the locals in Narnia, who are two talking beavers. Um, And so uh, this beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
So don't be fooled by your cute little nativity scenes with this cute and helpless baby Jesus. Our comfort and our power and our habits and our ways of life aren't safe when Jesus is around. And for those who set themselves against Jesus, there's a very real danger posed by Jesus in this sword that he brings. For us who call Jesus Lord, there's this constant refinement, this constant chipping away of anything that's not conformed to him. So as we think about our own response to Jesus' kingdom and these threats to our own power and comfort, I'd encourage you to think small, uh, because I think it's the little things that might have the most to say uh, about how we respond to Jesus. So in your daily mundane interactions, how do you respond to threats to your power and comfort? Do you respond like Herod and the Pharisees and seek to stifle Jesus and his Holy Spirit? Or do you bow before him in humble surrender like the Magi did? And as I was writing this, it was hard for me to to even think about preaching on this because I'm convicted about my own struggle against these constant attacks on my power and comfort. I can can just think of a million little interactions between me uh, and people I'm closest to or people I interact with um, where, yeah, the call of Christ for me is to serve and submit to the other. And that call is met with this disturbance and this strong resistance on my end. Maybe a brother or sister causes me some minor offense and I'm called to meet them with grace and mercy, and instead I respond with retaliation and bitterness. Or times where I have the opportunity to go out of my way to serve someone, but I choose rather to do nothing and serve myself. Again, just thinking on the, on the very smallest things, I even see when I'm just sitting at home, there's times where I can choose to exert a little bit of energy to engage with a roommate. Um, but I decide that even that minor sacrifice is too much and I'd rather serve myself. So make no mistake, if Christ is to be king, it means the end of your own kingdom. So where in your life do you find yourself resisting his reign? If Jesus and, and this gospel he brings comes with no level of discomfort to you, then you probably haven't bought into the full gospel yet. Be careful not to reduce your faith to something that exists to serve you and just make your life better and easier. Your life will certainly be better with Christ, but it will cost you everything. So I'd encourage each of us to take stock of how we respond to the small little things in life that feel like an attack on our power and comfort. How do you respond when you're presented with opportunities to sacrifice just a bit of your comfort and serve someone else? How do you respond when maybe a brother or sister confronts you about a weakness or something you could have done better? If you're driving on the road, how do you respond when you're cut off? Classic question. That might say a lot about how we respond to this. And as you consider this and pray about this with God this week, pray the words of the Lord's Prayer that are found just a few chapters ahead in Matthew and let their true meaning sink into your heart. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your life be a place where Jesus' kingdom can fully come and manifest in you. So let's move on to the next few verses in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15. It says, when they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. 
Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So in in thinking about this passage, I just want to go back to, to the theme I called out last week, that Jesus is at the center of God's story. The genealogy in Matthew 1 makes that that concept very clear. And then here in Matthew 2, we start to see all these ways that Matthew says that Jesus fulfills things. And there's a few different ways that Jesus might fulfill something when Matthew's talking about this. The most common one that we might think of when we think about Jesus fulfilling something is him fulfilling a predictive prophecy. So the prophecy said that that the uh, Pharisees quoted at the beginning, it said that a ruler would be born in Bethlehem. That was speaking about Jesus uh, in predictive prophecy, saying that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So he fulfilled that prophecy. So that's the first kind of meaning of, of this fulfillment. There's another sense of the word, though, and we see this a few chapters ahead in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says this. He says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to raise the stakes for all these different commandments. So no longer is the command, don't murder, but rather, don't hate. And no longer is it, don't commit adultery, but don't even look at a woman lustfully. So in Jesus, this fulfillment is the law and the prophets finding their full meaning, reaching their full potential. Jesus builds on this rich tradition, the law and the prophets. He builds on this tradition of the Jews rather than tearing it all down and starting over. And then there's a third sense in which Jesus fulfills, which is found here in this passage. So Matthew talks here about how Jesus and his family had to flee to Egypt. They stayed there for a while, and then they left Egypt and went back to Israel. And Matthew says, it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. But this could seem like quite an off-the-wall statement by Matthew if you know the quotation. He's quoting Hosea 11, the first few verses. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. So this passage from Hosea is clearly not a prophecy about the Messiah. This is God speaking through the prophet Hosea in accusation of the nation of Israel, who was mightily delivered by God out of Egypt, and out of their slavery, but then they proceeded to reject him and turn away from him. So in this third sense of fulfillment, Matthew's not describing some predictive prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus, but rather a way in which Jesus is analogous to the nation of Israel, a sort of type of the nation of Israel. So in the Exodus, which is perhaps the most defining point in Israel's history up to then, We see Israel escape from slavery under Pharaoh into the promised land that God had given them. And so Matthew here is trying to draw our attention to this fact that Jesus is leading a new exodus. The first exodus, as monumental and awe-inspiring as it was, was limited in its scope and effectiveness. So it only applied to the nation of Israel being liberated from Egypt. And then we see that Israel kind of blows it and they end up right back in slavery years later as they get exiled from their land. 
But Jesus came to lead a universal and permanent exodus. This exodus was to lead all who would follow him out of the kingdom of sin and death and into a new kingdom, one that would never be corrupted, where his reign would never come to an end. And the book of Matthew is rich with imagery of this new exodus. So pay attention, especially over these next few chapters in Matthew. Just like Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea and then into the wilderness for 40 years, we see in these next few chapters, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism and then he goes straight into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. And then in Israel's story, God gives this law to Moses from the mountain, these five books of the law. And in in, uh, Matthew, Jesus delivers his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, from the top of a mountain. And we even see in Matthew, the whole structure of the book is five different sermons that Jesus gives, which are probably meant to correspond to these five books of the law. Jesus giving this new law, this new covenant for the people of Israel. So Matthew really wants us to see Jesus as this new Moses leading this new exodus um, for the people of Israel and for the whole world. So where Israel failed to be the righteous servant of God for the healing of the world, Jesus succeeded. And where each of us humans failed to image God like we were called to, Jesus succeeded. He shows us what it means to be truly human. So don't go getting confused in thinking that God's story centers around you. Remember, when you chose to enter into God's kingdom, you abdicated the throne of your life. Thank God that he's chosen to let us into his family, but it's only through Christ that we're able to be part of God's story. When you choose to make Jesus Lord, you're entwining your life with his so that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. So Jesus hasn't only fulfilled every prophecy about the Messiah, but he's also fulfilled our very humanity, showing us what it means to be human. While Israel failed to uphold their covenant with God, Jesus has established a new covenant through which we can all be made right with God. And all that's required of us is to let go of our our little kingdoms and to follow him on this new exodus as he leads us out of the grip of sin and death. So towards the end of Matthew chapter 2, Herod discovers that these magi have outwitted him. They don't go back to him like Herod requested. Um, And he's furious and he orders the slaughter of all the baby boys that are around the area of Bethlehem. Matthew describes another fulfillment here in comparing this slaughter of these baby boys in Bethlehem to a verse in Jeremiah 31 where Jeremiah talks about Rachel weeping for her children in Ramah. And Ramah was the city during the Israelite exile where all the Jewish captives were being held before being taken off to Babylon. Obviously, this time of exile was a time of great distress for Israel as they saw their nation being dismantled and this apparent promise of God being unfulfilled. But this sad passage in Jeremiah as he describes this event is followed by one of the most beautiful and hopeful messages in all of Scripture. So I'm just going to close out my sermon by reading this passage from Jeremiah. And as I read this, just think about how Jesus fulfills this promise from God that we see in Jeremiah. And this is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, if you want to follow along. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this new covenant, for this new kingdom that was inaugurated um, with King Jesus. Um, We're so grateful that you've brought us into your family, that you've let us be a part of your story. Um, We live to serve you, God. We ask that you would convict us about the ways that we hang on to our own kingdoms, our own power and comfort, and that we would yield to the new kingdom that brings peace and life and hope for the whole world. pray in Jesus' name, amen.